Too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. You guys, I think that this is the the very first episode that I am using a microphone properly. Uh, what are we? We're 60-something episodes in, and yesterday was the first time ever that I googled how to use a microphone properly, and I learned some shit. So supposedly you're not supposed to speak directly into the top of the microphone. Didn't know that. You're also not supposed to speak directly into the microphone at all. Also did not know that. Okay, so today you're just getting me. And we are diving deep into a topic that honestly, I would rather not dive deep into, which is exactly why I'm doing this episode. We are talking about our relationship with money. Now, y'all know me. I'm an open book. I'm shameless. Uh, I will tell you all my cringiest, most embarrassing stories, my dating stories about peeing my pants out of Ruth's Chris. I don't give a shit. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. However, when it comes to this money shit, it's a little bit of a different story for me. You know, I've shared some about the financial wreckage that I created during my active adult child disease. But this is something that I don't really like sharing about. And it's something that I would prefer y'all not know about me. You know, there is an element of shame here that doesn't really exist um, in the other ways that my adult child disease manifests. And I have some some thoughts on why that is that I'll be getting into. So the other day I stumbled upon this video from Lisa Romano. She's a codependency guru, a therapist. And so she had this video and it was about money trauma, our relationship with money, the impact our childhoods have on our relationship with money. And, you know, nothing that she said was new information But for some reason, when I was listening to it, I had a visceral reaction. And the thought that came to me was, there is more to unpack here. There is more to be resolved. There are more, you know, faulty beliefs or fears as it relates to money and abundance. And as you know, or as most of y'all know, I'm at a very pivotal point in my life where I am a a new entrepreneur. I'm trying to grow this shit. I am in unchartered territory. And I really don't want any of that unresolved shit to get in the way of me being as successful as I can be and reaching as many adult children as possible. So we're going to be diving into this. And I'm sure that there's plenty of y'all listening to that would prefer not to dive into it either when it comes to your personal finances You know, money is such a a charged topic, (laughs) such a loaded topic. It really is something that, you know, touches upon almost every aspect of our life, even if we like to say that it doesn't, it plays a significant role in our lives. And I'm sure most of us grew up in homes 
where there was not a healthy relationship related to money or career or abundance. And so when you have an unhealthy relationship with money, that can really fuck some shit up and have a major impact on our lives. So we're going to be talking about the messages that we received regarding money during our childhood. We're going to be talking about something called money scripts, money disorders. We're going to be talking about compulsive debting and under-earning, a whole bunch of fun topics. But first, a few housekeeping items. So the next workshop that we're having is going to be on July 10th, Sunday, July 10th at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And this is with my girl Saskia Lightstar, former guest of the pod, the author of The Cancer Misfit. And this workshop is titled How to Quiet the Inner Critic, a Shut the Fuck Up workshop. Super pumped for this. So go check out the show notes for link to to buy a ticket. It is $20 for Patreon members, 30 bucks for everyone else. And the you can also purchase the replay. If you're not available at the time, you can purchase the replay. Um, $10 for Patreon folks and 15 bucks for everybody else. So go check that shit out. I also just want to give a shout out to the newest Patreon member. So Patreon is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. It is where the shit shows gather. It is where the shit shows gather to heal and have a little fun while we're doing it. So... Thank you, thank you, thank you to Chloe, Missy, Elena, Elvira, Jessica, Elizabeth, Tommy, Diana, Amanda, Mickles, Lucy, Megan, and Sid. Y'all are the shit. Don't you want to hear your name listed next week? I sure as hell do. So why don't you head on over to patreon.com slash adultchild Anna, join our groups and say, thanks, Andrea. Here's a buck 25 a week. You're awesome. I really appreciate you. You can also do that by following me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And of course, you can also do that by giving me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. If this is not your first time listening and you have not done so, what the hell is going on? Thank you much. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under, under, under. All right, so let's just start with all the shit that I don't want to talk about, my issues with money. So in October of 2014, that is when I entered the working world and I became financially independent, mostly. My parents were still helping me some, but this was the moment where I got into the driver's seat and my parents got into the passenger seat as far as my finances went. And so the messages that I had received about money management from my parents had been, you know, you have a budget, you stick to it, you know, you live within your means, or perhaps you even live a little under your means, you save, you pay your credit card bill off in full every month, Uh, you just, you spend wisely. And so I would say for the first year of working, I was, I was pretty responsible, you know, every paycheck I was putting I don't know, a couple hundred bucks into a savings and I accumulated a, you know, pretty decent sized savings and and I was paying my credit card bill off every month and there were no issues with money. There was no stress regarding money. And then at a certain point, and I think this is as my 
adult child disease is progressing, as the disease of family dysfunction is progressing within me, you know, I start to act out financially. And so I start having to, you know, pull money out of that savings to cover my credit card. uh, And then I eventually completely depleted that savings and started to rack up some credit card debt. And so what was I spending my money on? You know, I wasn't going on lavish shopping sprees or, you know, it was it was never huge ticket items. It was just like small shit that added up uh, going out to expensive dinners, ordering takeout when there was food in the fridge, um, taking Ubers and Lyfts everywhere when I could have walked or took the bus. And so there was just no regard or concern for how much money I was spending. I had no damn clue how much money I was spending. And there was never once a moment where I would consider whether or not I can afford something. You know, if a friend asks someone to dinner, you know, sometimes a friend would say, I can't afford it this week. That was never even a consideration. You know, no regard for how much money I was spending. And so I rack up a significant amount of of credit card debt. And I, I told my sponsor about it. I ended up, you know, talking to my mom about it. And I got honest with her. She was not happy with me. Um, you know, financial responsibility was was highly stressed uh, to me. But she, she gave me the money to pay it off and, you know, just made me promise her that this would never happen again and that I would change my spending habits. And I promised that that would be the case. But it wasn't fucking the case. You know, I paid the credit card bill off, but then I I just kept on as, you know, business as usual. I didn't start living within a budget and I still continued to spend money with no regard for how much money I was spending. And so I rack up, you know, a significant amount of credit card debt again. And I take out a personal loan to try to pay that off. So I do. I take out this loan and I pay it off and yet again, I don't change my behaviors. And over the course of like the next year or two, I would try to climb myself out of this hole only to dig myself deeper into it. And I was, you know, stuck in this place of financial denial, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which is a, you know, a money disorder. But I was, I I had no idea how much money I was spending. I had no idea how much was in my bank account. You know, I didn't want to look at it. I would try to go as long as I could without checking my, my bank balance. And I would just have this like, you know, this, this fear, never knowing if it was going to be like $2,000 or negative $2,000. And I didn't, you know, want to check the mail and I was getting, you know, calls from creditors And I was just trying my best to just bury my head into the sand. And, you know, each time I would, you know, take out a loan or take out another credit card or whatever, I would promise myself that I was going to do things differently. I promised myself that I was going to start living within my means, that I was going to start, you know, I was going to create a budget and I was going to, you know, live within this budget. And without fail, every single fucking time, I was completely incapable of doing this. And it was exactly like the guy stuff, you know, getting out of a relationship, promising myself that I was going to do things differently 
in the next relationship, that I was not going to ignore red flags, that I was not going to date guys named Brian who are alcoholics. And guess what? It didn't matter. You know, all these promises, these oaths, none of that shit mattered. You know, I kept finding myself doing the same thing over and over and over again, which just goes to show how this really has absolutely nothing to do with the money, right? Because I know what I'm supposed to do. You know, it's not like I'm I'm in denial of that, but I am completely incapable of doing so. This is not a matter of, of logic. You know, this is emotional. This is deeply rooted. And I think that it was a way for me to create unmanageability in my life, a way to create chaos and a way to produce shame. You know, it was how I was producing shame hits. You know, it, it's so crazy how we do that stuff. You know, I was behaving this way so that I could get a hit of shame. And I think it was also a way for me to stay in that scapegoat role that had been forced upon me. I think it also was a way to keep myself in the child role. You know, I think that somehow it was my way of staying connected to the dysfunctional family system. So I'm going to be referencing several books throughout the episode, and I'll leave all of them in, in the show notes. So this first book is called Financial Recovery by Karen McCall. And she talks about the how how shame is really at the core of our issues with money. And she says, shame and deprivation are regularly at play in an unhealthy relationship with money and the financial disease it brings. Deprivation and shame lead us to create an external reality that reflects our inner sense of worthlessness. We create outside circumstances that match our inside experience of deprivation. Under-earning, overspending, and chronic debting stem from deep-rooted shame. Those who have experienced childhood neglect or abuse often have a difficult time valuing themselves, and hence, they struggle to earn money that would serve in their own self-care. After all, if we feel worthless... Why would we feel we deserve to have our financial needs met? What better than a negative balance in the form of debt to reflect back to us our feeling that we are without value? Ugh. <laughs> Soak that one, baby. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. So the, the purpose of my spending and creating this financial wreckage was one to, you know, reaffirm those faulty beliefs about myself that I'm unworthy, that I'm inherently flawed, that I am unlovable. It served as a way to, you know, self-medicate and check out. And I think it was also a way that I tried to, you know, hide and, and camouflage my deep-rooted issues. As long as there's money or I'm spending money on things, nice things, there's no problems because that was what was taught to me as a child. It's all about outward appearances. As long as there's money, as long as we have money in the bank account, as long as, you know, we got two cars, we belong to the country club, we go on trips, we good here. <laughs> no issues to be seen. It was like we would, you know, 
cover up the windows with with dollar bills so you can't see what's actually going on within the home. She also says in Financial Recovery that as long as we don't recognize the haunting effects of shame and deprivation, logical solutions to our money problems have little hope of being effective. Freedom comes when we reach a place of admitting that our best efforts and sincerest intentions haven't worked to improve our financial lives. And, you know, the pain got great enough for me, the discomfort got great enough for me where I, you know, waved the white flag of surrender and and recognized that this is a much bigger issue. You know, it's just like the the aha with, you know, Brian number two. You know, I got to this point where I was like, oh shit, you know, this is this is something that that needs to be addressed. You know, you've been trying to get yourself out of this. You just keep making more of a mess. You keep telling yourself that you're going to climb out of this. You're not fucking climbing out of this. You don't know how to climb out of this. You need to ask for help. And you need to take a look at the faulty programming, the limiting beliefs, the fears that are keeping you in this shame. So how about we talk about that now? So there is a book called Mind Over Money. It is by Brad and Ted Klontz. It's essentially like an adult child perspective on, you know, our relationship with money, how our issues with money are rooted in our childhood experiences. And so it says, it comes as no surprise that dysfunctional family systems often result in financial dysfunction. Given money's powerful influence on every aspect of life, and its symbolic connections to emotions like comfort, security, and affection, it's only natural that we are quite prone to misinterpreting money's role in painful family systems. Money itself may not be the primary issue, but it can very quickly become associated with family pain or problems. For children, the situation is even more complicated. When we see the people around us reacting to money in certain ways, We internalize that information, which leaves a lasting imprint on us, especially in our most impressionable years. There are deep-seated, complicated, and even adaptive reasons why changing your money behavior is so difficult. Once you understand and accept those reasons, you can learn to overcome the roadblocks standing in your way. To change your financial future, you must be willing to challenge and change what you think you know. So I think that what determines our relationship with money and what needs to be looked at if we are trying to become financially healthy is, you know, the childhood messaging, both the the conscious and the subconscious messages that we received internalized during our childhood. So I already shared some of the, you know, more concrete surface level messages that I was taught. So, you know, live within a budget, pay your credit card bill off, be financially, you know, responsible, blah, 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 blah. But the subconscious messages that were emitted, that were internalized within me, was that while money is not the key to happiness, it sure as hell is a very large component that you do not follow your dreams, you follow the money, 
that self-worth and wealth are correlated. You go the route where there's already a clear path that has been paid, paved for you to the top. You don't do anything risky. You know, you stick with what's safe and, and what you know. Uh, you don't get certain college degrees because you cannot become rich. You know, I remember at some point, I don't know if I was in middle school or high school and saying that I wanted to be um, a therapist or that I wanted to study psychology. And, and that was that was shot down like really fast because they said that you couldn't become wealthy if you, you know, go to school for psychology. And that money was the most important thing. Money was more important than family, which I will expand upon. So in this book, Mind Over Money, he talks about these financial flashpoints. So these are intense emotional experiences relating to money that shape our money scripts. So our patterns of thinking and acting as it relates to monies. And while each of us has flashpoints or experiences from childhood that shape our relationship with money, some of these experiences are more painful and traumatic than others. Financial flashpoints don't have to be shocking or rare events, like finding out that your father has robbed you of all your savings or seeing your mother being hauled off to jail. Many common everyday experiences, a hurtful comment from the parent, an embarrassing moment in front of peers, can leave similar lasting imprints and have similar and lasting negative effects on our financial and mental health. The effects of these traumas may not be as immediately noticeable or easy to pinpoint, but they are just as real. All right, so what are some of my flashpoints? So I've shared about being a little girl, sitting on the steps, getting an adrenaline rush, listening to my parents fight, and they only fought about two things. They fought about my mom's alcoholism, and they fought about money. And it's interesting. I was thinking about this and chatting about this with a friend. So I'd sit there and I'd listen to them, you know, argue. And, uh, you know, if you just hear the words from my dad, I mean, you would think that, you know, we're, we're about to go broke. But I knew that that was not the case. I feel like a lot of kids would sit there and they would listen and they would be afraid, like, oh, my God, are we going to you know, be homeless? Do we not have any money? And for me, when I was listening, I always knew that that was not the case. I always knew that what they were fighting about was rather insignificant amounts of money. And even though I knew this consciously, I would have to assume and imagine that given my dad's intensity, that this did imprint something in me. And the times that my dad was mad at me or when he would lash out at me, it was also related to money, rather insignificant amounts of money. You know, I have this very vivid memory of going to Australia. I think I was like 11. And we, you know, they spent all this money to go there on this nice trip. And I just remember we were in this Chinese restaurant in Chinatown in Sydney, I wanted to order a shrimp dish that my dad thought was too expensive and proceeded to have a fucking meltdown. And <laughs> this would happen. Like, this would be the theme. You know, him just blowing up over rather insignificant amounts of money. He did this when we went to Japan. It was like the first day that we got there. Um, it was... I can't remember what it was over. It was over another like food item. But, you know, we're talking 
uh, I don't know, a couple, like an extra 20, 40 bucks at most, probably even less for some of this stuff. So he he just had a total meltdown and he was going to go back. He was going to fly back to the U.S. But of course, uh, when he realized how much, how expensive it was going to be to change his ticket, he has changed his mind there. But, you know, this was just kind of a, the, a common theme. And I know that... That was my dad's manifestation of, of his disease. You know, my mom was the al- active alcoholic and my dad was the workaholic and he that was his way of feeling in control and safe and money was truly his number one priority. You know, I have shared that he went out of town all the time for work knowing that my mom was, you know, an alcoholic, knowing that she was getting drunk, knowing that she was driving me all around town drunk, you know, calling me while he was out of town, like reporting to him what was going on. I'm like nine years old, you know, and it wasn't until I was 12, I think, that was the very first time that he told me to not get in the car with my mom if she had been drinking and to call someone, you know, thinking back on this now, like, why the fuck did I have to be the one to, <laughs> to the one to tell someone? Like, he could have reached out to one of our family friends and said, hey, Mary's an alcoholic and, you know, if Andrea might call you if she needs a ride. But nope, that was on me. I remember it was a Friday. I was getting picked up at school at noon. We were flying down to Disney World. My dad was already down there for work, of course. And um, I, I felt it. I, I had that sixth sense. I knew that my mom was going to drink that morning. And so it's, I don't know, a few minutes after when she's supposed to pick me up. She's not there. I call her. She obviously had already passed out. And so she told me that she would, she would be right there. And so I get off the phone and then I call my friend's dad from this payphone. Uh, I knew that he worked at home and I had her, mem- her number memorized. And so I remember calling him up. Hi, Mr. So-and-so you know, my mom's an alcoholic and she's on her way to school to pick me up to take me to the airport. And so then he drove to the school. My mom got there in one piece and he drove us to the airport, you know, but it was just this message that I don't think that I on a conscious level thought this because as I said before, I found a lot of this stuff to be like rather exciting. Like that's how I viewed it. It gave me like a hit of adrenaline. So uh, I don't ever think that there was, on a conscious level, the belief that my dad, his work and money is more important to him than me. But obviously, on a subconscious level, that obviously was ingrained in me. So another thing that was ingrained in me was how awful it was to be financially irresponsible. Like, it was a really, really bad and shameful thing. So A story that I heard repeatedly from my dad growing up was, so I guess my uncle, so my uncle is eight years older than my dad. So when my uncle was, I would say maybe around 18, he inherited this sum of money from like a distant relative. I'm not quite sure why my uncle received it and my dad did not. But so my my uncle inherited this large amount of money You know, so I guess my uncle was like in and out of, he went to like six different colleges before he actually graduated. And then throughout adulthood, he was constantly, you know, starting businesses, having them fail, just lots of risky business ventures. And he was not in a good place financially. 
And I know that there was like a period of time where my dad was helping him out and then my grandmother was. Uh, I just have these like memories of being at my grandmother's house and listening to them argue about it and just hearing it from my dad about how the fact that he inherited this money um, really screwed him up and how basically just that like being financially irresponsible is like it's it's a a character flaw. It's even more so than that. It's just it like makes somebody like a bad person. That was kind of the message that was ingrained in me as well. My mom's brother also at a certain point had financial issues. They were helping him for a period of time, and then my grandmother was was helping him for a period of time as well. And just the message received was that these were people making like consciously bad choices and and perhaps they were but the other thing is that they both were struggling from alcoholism so that played a role in it so of course I felt so much shame when I started behaving that way and of course that's why I didn't want my parents to know about it you know my parents heavily stressed to me growing up that you know they were intentionally trying not to spoil me. So I grew up in a very affluent um, suburbs of Philadelphia, very wealthy area of Philadelphia. And, you know, I knew that we weren't poor. I knew that we were like fairly well off financially, but I really didn't know the level of wealth that we did have because people around us and my, my friends' parents, I mean, they just were more flashy or they just seemed to have more money than us. So I wasn't, and I, and I was, you know, at times I was a little bit resentful towards my parents about that, but they made it very clear to me that I couldn't just get everything that I wanted and that, you know, that they were trying to, to raise me to have character and have values. And that wealth comes from working hard, which my dad did. And, you know, I do respect them for that. And regardless of whether, you know, there were underlying motivations or the disease of family dysfunction in play with that as well. As I said, a dysfunctional family and a loving family are not mutually exclusive. I don't think that my parents ever tried to intentionally try to harm me or fuck me up. I don't ever think that was a conscious choice on their behalf. And, you know, I also want to say, too, because of them being financially responsible and because of my dad working hard and that came with perks, too. And a lot of um, a lot of my happiest childhood memories are getting to go on fun vacations. And my parents, they could have just left me at home. You know, they included me in a lot of things. My dad went to Florida State. We always had season tickets and they started taking me to games when I was six. So we'd fly down from Philly to Florida or all over the country and go to games. And those are truly some of my happiest memories as a child. They could have very easily left me at home. Well, I guess they couldn't, guys. <laughs> because remember, I had that little old thing called called separation anxiety. And the other thing, too, was that they were in a position to send me to boarding schools and rehabs. <laughs> Uh, even though I was being scapegoated and all that shit, I mean, that that truly did help me get sober. I, I truly believe that, that having all of these consequences from my parents related to drugs and alcohol, how strict they were on me, it was almost like it sped up my disease in a way. I don't know how to explain it. Like, 
I, because I just had to go to greater lengths to do things, but because of these consequences, I feel like it sped up my disease. And so I became just a real hot mess, even more so. I mean, I guess some of that has to do with the toxic shame and just me being an absolute train wreck under the influence. Guys, if you have not listened to episode four, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you do so. I was the girl that got kicked out of the party, who returned to the party, and got everyone arrested at the party for underage drinking. Party animal. Uh, But I think about that when I hear people share in meetings or when I'm talking to somebody about their child who is struggling with drugs and alcohol, I don't know what the fuck you do if you can't afford to to send them to places, you know? And if you do send them somewhere, please don't send them to the Hyde School in Maine. <laughs> please do your research. And also, here's, when it, here's where it went wrong in my family, right? They were sending me away. Uh, we were addressing my problem, but we were not addressing... The problem at large, which is the family disease of alcoholism and the disease of family dysfunction. But you know what? Maybe thank God they didn't because maybe we wouldn't be having this podcast if that had been the case. Um, But needless to say, you know, my parents were extremely, extremely generous with me. And so this is not me shitting on them. But as I've said before, This isn't about placing blame. This is about talking about the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are so that we can fucking get better because that is how we get better is we have to dissect this shit. This shit is ingrained in us so, so deeply. It is like in our DNA. When people say like, oh, you just need to just move on and get over it. That was a long time ago. Unfortunately, unfortunately, guys, when it comes to this shit, it does not work that way. We have to talk about it. So one more uh, financial flashpoint for me. So, you know, I had a, a clothing allowance. So I've talked about everything was on a budget. And so I got X amount of money every month to spend on clothes. And I was constantly in the red. I constantly had a negative balance. You know, I would want to buy something and I wouldn't have any money in my clothing allowance. And so I'd ask my mom if she could just take it out of the next month. And she would. And when I had summer jobs and I would get paid, you know, like maybe halfway through the summer and then at the very end, she, I would ask her if she could front me my check. And so she'd give me the money. And then when I got the actual paycheck, I would have to, you know, hand it over to her immediately. But that taught me to spend money that I did not have, which obviously followed me into adulthood. So we have these financial flashpoints, and then it is through our interpretation of these flashpoints that we develop our money scripts. So our beliefs about money, the way that we think about money, and then it is through these money scripts that we develop money disorder. So it says money disorders are persistent, predictable, and often rigid patterns of self-destructive financial behaviors that cause significant stress, anxiety, emotional stress, and impairment in major areas of one's lives. People in the grips of money disorders can't seem to shake these faulty beliefs or change their behaviors no matter how much chaos and misery they cause. So in the book, he lies out three different categories of money disorders. So first we have money avoidance disorders. So 
This involves a systematic rejection or avoidance of money. They stem from scripts that equate money with negative emotions or painful events. In other words, the belief that money is bad. So some common money avoidance scripts would be money is the root of all evil, or you can have love or money, but you can't have both, or people become rich by taking advantage of others. It's not okay to have more than you need. Um, It's wrong to have more money than others in my family. And so Lisa Romano actually talks about this in the video that I mentioned at the top of the episode, you know, this belief that if I surpass my parents' education, if I surpass my parents' success or wealth, that that's not okay, that they're going to have an issue with that. And therefore, we limit ourselves, our success, our potential rooted in this fear of what our parents may do if we live beyond them in some respect. So then the next category of money disorders would be money worshiping disorders. So this is when there's a disproportionate amount of importance on money, earning it, saving it, spending it. They share a common thread in that they all arise from scripts that equate money with safety, self-worth, and or happiness. So some common money worshiping money scripts would be um, more money or things will make me happier. Uh, I have to work to be sure I have enough money. If I don't work hard, people will think I'm lazy. Uh, My self-worth equals my net worth. And so the last category of uh, money disorders is relational money disorders. So these are disorders in which, you know, the people suffering from it not only wreak havoc on their own emotional and financial lives, but also the emotional and financial lives of others. These disorders are also very much tangled up in a relationship and emotion over one's relationship with others. So some common relational money disorder scripts would be, um, you can tell how much someone loves you by how much they spend on you. Uh, If you hold others financially responsible, they will abandon you. Spending money on others gives my life meaning. One of the ways to keep friends and families close is to, you know, give them gifts and loan them money. So those are the three categories. So I sent out a survey to my Patreon shit shows where it had all of the money avoidance disorders and all of the relational money disorders. And so I asked them if they themselves relate to this money disorder and or was this money disorder present in their homes growing up. So I'm not going to go over every single one that I asked them about, but I'm going to cover the heavy hitters. So the two disorders that they related to the most as far as their own financial behaviors are financial rejection and financial denial. So financial rejection, this is when people feel guilty about having money. They commonly feel that they are unworthy or undeserving of anything good in life, including money. 94% of people said that they related to this. So that was the clear winner. And then uh, financial denial. So this is when we minimize our money problems or try to avoid thinking about them altogether rather than face our financial reality. People with this disorder fail to look at bank or credit card statements, don't communicate with their partner about money, and avoid savings or accumulating wealth. This is what I was was struggling with. And so 76% of people said that they related to 
uh, financial denial. So then as far as the disorders that were most relevant, most present in our homes growing up, the the winner by a landslide was financial incest. So 95% of people said that this was present in their homes growing up. This is when people use their money to either control or manipulate one's child or to satisfy adult needs. This type of incest is not sexual or physical. It's psychologically abusive and it can be emotionally scarring and damaging for a child. So examples uh, of this that they give in the book. So using a child as a human shield when bill collectors call, coaching the child to answer the phone or door with lies about where his or her parents are, using a child to negotiate financial situations that should be resolved between adults. So yeah, 95% of, of respondents said that that was present in their family. And then the next most popular, <laughs> popular is the right, the right word, was um, financial infidelity. So this is when people deliberately and secretly keep a major secret about one's spending or finances from one's partner. They make purchases outside an agreed-upon budget or lie about the cost of a big-ticket item. Financial infidelity often stems from the fact that trust is already absent in the relationship. So 72% of people said that that was uh, present in their homes growing up. So I also asked, on a scale of one to five, how much stress are you currently experiencing related to finances or your career. So one being no stress at all, five being super fucking stressful. And so over 50% of people said a four or five. So over half said that they, you know, they have some significant stress and struggles related to money. So what the hell do we do about this, guys? It's the same, it's the same answer as always. This is about uh, reprogramming the faulty and limiting beliefs. There's many ways to go about that. You know, therapy's a way. There's many types of therapy. And then we also need to learn new tools and we need to seek out support from those who have been where we currently are and who have walked through it. So there are two 12-step programs related to money So first there's DA, Debtors Anonymous. So this is for compulsive debting. We talked about that in the episode with Ben Rimmelauer. It was within the first 15 episodes, I believe. And then there is Under Earners Anonymous, which we also discussed some in the episode with Jen Kirkman. But I want to talk a little bit more about this under-earning shit because I think it's a little meatier, a little juicier, and a little more relevant to us shit shows. So what the hell is under-earning? I am going to be reading to you guys from about under-earners anonymous. Again, I'll also include that in the show notes. So it says, under-earning is many things, not all of which are about money. Under-earning is about underachieving or under-being no matter how much money we make. It is about the inability to fully acknowledge and express our capabilities and competencies. The visible consequence is the inability to provide for one's needs, including future needs. Under-earning is about not living up to our unique potential, not following through on our dreams and goals. It is about giving up on ourselves. And that, in essence, is the definition of an adult child, not living up to our unique potential, 
not following through on our dreams and goals, giving up on ourselves and and living as this false self. So here are some symptoms of under earning. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but the ones that seem most uh, relevant to me. So number one is time and difference. This one was a was a real punch to the gut when I when I read it. So time and difference. We put off what must be done and do not use our time to support our own vision and further our own goals. Idea deflection. So we compulsively reject ideas that could enlarge our lives or careers and increase our profitability. A compulsive need to prove. So although we have demonstrated competencies in our jobs or businesses, we are driven by a need to reprove our worth and value. Clinging to useless possessions also highly relate to this. We hold on to possessions that no longer serve our needs, such as threadbare clothing or broken appliances. (laughs) Who out there has got a damn broken blender sitting in their cabinet? You got any little toaster ovens hiding under your bed? Um, Giving away our time. We compulsively volunteer for various causes or give away our services without charging when there's no clear benefit. benefit, Undervaluing and underpricing. We fear asking for increases in compensation or for what the market will bear. Um, Not following up. We do not follow up on opportunities, leads, or jobs that could be profitable for us. We begin many projects and tasks, but often do not complete them also relate. And then last but not least, stability boredom. We create unnecessary conflict with coworkers, supervisors, and clients generating problems that result in financial distress. Well, guys, I got through it. I talked about the shit that I did not want to talk about Uh, It was cathartic. I'm sure if this is something that I have a hard time talking about, I'm sure it's also a delicate and vulnerable and difficult area for y'all to look at as well. You know, there's still more work to be done here. As I said, there's still some limiting beliefs, some unfinished business to resolve. There's a part of me that is disappointed in myself, a bit resentful that I did create that financial wreckage because I would be in a different position than I am today. You know, I I got fired in in January. Well, I guess I worked until the end of February, but I deserved to be fired. A hundred percent. You know, when I started this podcast, I became a shitty employee. I'm not sure if I was like really that great of an employee prior to that. I mean, I I was so-so. Because here's the deal, guys. If I'm not into something, I don't do a good job. I did not inherit the perfectionism, the overachieving trait that many adult children develop. If I'm not into something, I suck. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm a horrible employee. And I was a bad employee. And I would try to get myself kick myself into gear and maybe I'd work hard for two days and and that that's as long as it would last. So I didn't feel great about that. I didn't feel like I was living in integrity, but I also was not in a position where I could afford to not have a job. And then my higher power in the universe made that decision for me. In, in January, my boss had a meeting with me and he said, this is not working. And I said, you are absolutely correct. This is not working. 
And I want to, you know, acknowledge my part. Like I know that I am not being the employee that you deserve to have. And at this point in time, I was by no means in a position to not have a job, to not have regular income. You know, the podcast still wasn't bringing in enough for me to, you know, fully live off of. And that's rather scary, right? Um, And I sure as hell was not going to ask my parents for any help. But at the same time, there was also just this sense of comfort because I knew that this was my higher power, the universe giving me that push off the ledge that I needed to fully step into my purpose. And I've just been really rooted in the belief that my higher power is not going to let me go to waste. And so over the past four months, my higher power, the universe has really been, has really been showing up for me. And y'all shit shows have also been showing up for me as well. And I couldn't be more grateful. I am so fucking grateful for each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for listening to me and thinking, thank you for making me feel heard and seen and understood. And anytime I start spinning out about, you know, the future or my finances, I get a message from one of you hot messes <laughs> telling me how this is impacting your life. And uh, yeah, that, get, that gives me the reassurance that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be and everything is going according to plan and life is beautiful. So that wraps up today's episode, guys. Thanks, Andrea. What what a phenomenal human. <laughs> what an amazing gal. Uh, check out the show notes for, for ways to contact her. Go give her a little follow on the uh, on the old Instagram and TikTok. Go join the workshop, join the Patreon, give me reviews. I don't think I have anything else to say that I can think of. Uh, hit a girl up. I love hearing from you guys. And I will see y'all for another fucking amazing shit show Saturday. This Saturday, actually, we are taking this topic deeper. We are talking about this. I had a, a Patreon group on Sunday where I posed this question as well. What were the beliefs ingrained in you regarding money, career, abundance during your childhood? So you're going to get to hear some some other perspectives on that. So it's going to be super raw, super vulnerable. I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a great, I promise.